KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Protests in downtown San Diego over no charges in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California says no to new gas-powered cars after the year 2035. California is only less than 1% of global emissions, and so if we want to stop climate change, we ultimately have to have what happens in California not stay in California. The KPBS podcast Rad Scientist presents an engineer determined to help the speech impaired and gardens that preserve our history get a spotlight on the new season of the KPBS TV series, A Growing Passion. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. San Diego protesters joined demonstrators in cities across the country Wednesday, protesting no charges being brought against police in Kentucky in the death of Breonna Taylor. Only one of the three Louisville officers involved was indicted by a grand jury, and that charge was a minor felony for shooting into another apartment at the scene. Taylor was killed in a hail of gunfire as police mistakenly raided her apartment last March. After a peaceful demonstration involving several hundred protesters, San Diego police say three protesters were arrested in a smaller march near police headquarters. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania. And Andrea, welcome. Thank you for having me. What were protesters here saying about the decision not to indict the officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor? I think it definitely echoes what we were seeing, you know, across the um, the state. But here in San Diego, what I was getting from a lot of people was frustration, frustration that um, after waiting for so long, they felt that, you know, justice, they did not get justice. Um, so a lot of uh, especially black women that were at the protest uh, were saying that they saw themselves in um, in this case and just looking at pictures of Brianna, they saw themselves and they felt like they're not protected under uh, current laws or, you know, current practices in place. So people were very upset. Some people were saying, you know, our community is bleeding, our community is hurt. Um, so there's a lot of frustration and um, people were just demanding some kind of accountability uh, hoping to maybe get more information as to how the grand jury came to this conclusion, whether some of that could um, be available to the public and things like that. Where did the San Diego protests take place and about how many people took part? Well, there was two um, in downtown San Diego. I believe there was another one in Escondido. I did not go to that one. Uh, the first one was outside the San Diego Superior Court. Um, it was pretty small. I was at that one. It was around 4 p.m. I would say uh, maybe started off with like a handful of people and then uh, throughout the day became like 35 people. And then after that, there was one at 7 p.m. Uh, closer to a downtown area, like on 
8th and B Street. And um, that one, you know, we had like hundreds of protesters. Now, the San Diego Sheriff's Department apparently secured the front of the Superior Court building downtown. What actions did they take? Yeah, so that was interesting. I actually had just walked up to uh, the court building before that happened. Um, there, there weren't any protesters yet, but um, these deputies came out and they just placed caution tape around the steps, t- kind of to prevent you know people from from standing on the stairs. It seemed, um, and yeah, they just rolled out some some caution tape. They stood there for a little while. I think one or two protesters had showed up at that time. And um, they ended up just going back inside the courthouse, even when the bigger group came about. Um, most of the sh- sheriff's deputies stayed inside. You could see them through the, the window uh, doors or the glass doors. Sorry. Um, but but they you know weren't doing this kind of like big presence where they were you know standing out there. It, it was just a couple of sheriffs. Police apparently declared the evening protest, that smaller protest where the arrests were made, uh, an unlawful assembly. Did UT reporters see the protests turn violent? I personally didn't. Like I said, I was at the earlier one, and that one was pretty calm. Uh, There's not a lot of police presence, although there were some um, in the group who, um, you know, did mention um, some intentions that if, if things got violent from police officers that they were going to return with some sort of action. I didn't see it personally, but um, later, once at nighttime, Alex did capture some videos on, on Twitter. Um, You know, in one video, you see uh, police officers kind of pull this protester um, behind their line. And um, it kind of looks like a scuffle. Maybe, um, maybe they were on top of him sort of and you can just hear in the background this woman, you know, screaming and uh, telling them to let him go. And um, so, so, so that's kind of what uh, was captured last night. You know, a lot of the racial justice movement in the past months has been uh, advocating for a change in the way the police sort of handle protests and other kinds of interactions. Were there any visible signs San Diego police or deputies had changed their tactics toward protesters? You know, one thing that really stood out to me, I mean, like I mentioned, when when they were placing the caution tape before any of the protesters showed up, um, all the sheriff's deputies kind of stood up at the top of the stairs and it was very, you know, they were like in their stance. Um, They weren't wearing any uh, riot gear or anything, but it it was intimidating to see so many sheriff's deputies out there. But then I think they kind of uh, backtracked on that and then went inside, as I mentioned. And so I thought that was interesting because by the time that the group had gotten larger, um, there was like one sheriff's deputy outside by the steps just kind of watching things. So it seemed a different approach from what I saw when we first saw some of these protests in downtown. Um, And then later into the night, I noticed that um, as opposed to having, you know, these like big uh, caravans kind of following protesters or leading the protest um, of like police officer vehicles, um, I saw a lot of uh, officers on bicycles, which um, it feels different, right? It feels different to have a a bicycle following you than like these big cars. So that that stood out to me. Um, I did see that Alex later at night posted a video of something that looked like um, like a like a fire bang or flash bang, I think is what they're called. And um, so so I did see that in a video, but but you know, I don't don't know how what led them to use that tactic. Okay, well, I have been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, Maureen. 
Using California's devastating wildfires as a springboard, Governor Gavin Newsom has taken a dramatic policy leap to reduce future carbon emissions. Yesterday, he issued an executive order to require all new cars sold in California to be zero-emission vehicles by 2035, the most aggressive clean car policy in the United States. Of all the simultaneous crises that we face as a state, and I would argue as a nation, from a global perspective, none is more impactful, none is more forceful uh, than the issue of the climate crisis. And that's exactly what we're advancing here today, uh, is a strategy to address that crisis head on. Joining us to look at the implications of the governor's radical plan is David Victor, who is Professor of International Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UCSD San Diego. Uh, Victor was also climate policy advisor to presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, by the way. David, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be back with you. So now put this into context. How big a deal is this ban on new gas-powered vehicles by 2035? Does it tackle climate crisis head-on? Well, so it's potentially a big deal. The governor's under enormous pressure to act on climate change. He was before the wildfires. The wildfires have made that more salient. And this is what California does, is we have, in effect, an industrial policy where we push new technologies. Uh, we, we make California the biggest market for them. That's what we've done with clean vehicles the last 20, 30 years. And then we hope that those technologies are going to diffuse around the rest of the world. And I think that's the key here is that he's laid out a very bold vision for uh, making all vehicles in California clean, all new vehicles clean. And then we've got to work hard to make sure that those same technologies spread out in the rest of the world. Because California is only less than 1% of global emissions. And so if we want to stop climate change, we ultimately have to have what happens in California not stay in California. But uh, transportation and vehicles does account for a very large percentage of emissions, right? Yes, and it's an area where emissions are going up. And uh, the only sector where we're starting to see reliable progress in parts of the world is electric power. Even here in California, we're seeing emissions go down because of more efficiency, uh, and in particular in California, more renewable power. And so in the electric sector, we have emissions going down. Transportation emissions have remained stubborn. Uh, industry uh, uh, emissions continue to, to go up. And, and so, in effect, this is part of a larger strategy to electrify as many energy uses as possible. And vehicles, at least light-duty vehicles, are a good candidate for that. So how likely is it that other states will follow suit? How will this affect the rest of the country? Well, I think we're seeing a real disconnect across the country. We're seeing the blue states behaving like California. And in fact, many of them uh, have, have uh, air pollution regulations that are identical to California's air pollution regulations. And then the red states are not. And so there's really, you know, like in all of our politics right now, we're seeing a, a polarization. And so I think these rules will, uh, will have an impact across much of the rest of the country. And if they result in electric vehicles getting a lot cheaper, and that looks promising, it's not a guarantee, but that looks promising, then the market on its own is going to push more of the electric vehicles uh, into service. And globally speaking, how many other countries are already ahead of California on this? Well, the Europeans, for the most part, are ahead of California in that they have announced bans on internal combustion, new, new internal combustion engine vehicles. The governor's order yesterday uh, requires that those vehicles be clean. So it's not necessarily a ban on internal combustion, but it's likely to be mean electricity. Um, and that'll put us in line with what's happening in Norway, for example. Norway is a huge market for electric vehicles, much of the rest of Europe, France, Germany, and so on. 
Uh, and but you know the, the Europeans are in a similar situation that we're in here in California, which is they're only 14% of global emissions and shrinking. And in fact, the more they do to control their own emissions, the less relevant they become to the global problem. And so they also have to be pushing these vehicles out. And the Chinese market's very important. The Indian market's going to be very important. How will this play into the state's battle, California's battle with the federal government over environmental regulations? Well, elections have consequences. This is going to be extremely important. Uh, uh, this is what the governor signed yesterday was actually something that had been working through the California Air Resources Board for a while. And they had already adopted a, a similar rule, but for uh, medium and heavy duty trucks uh, uh, out to the year 2045. And the playbook is the one that California set way back in 1990 when we first started to push zero emission vehicles into the California market. So that playbook, though, hinges on our ability to continue to have freedom in California to set our own air pollution regulations. And the Trump administration has been trying to roll that back. There are legal challenges around this. Uh, if we have another uh, four years of Trump plus a different Supreme Court, it could make it much harder to do these kinds of things in California. Now, it appears that the governor is taking a leadership role, but some environmental groups are not happy with his plan, and they say it doesn't go far enough. Do they have a point? Well, I think some of this unhappiness is built in. They're, 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 some of the, the groups are, are designed to be unhappy. <laughs> it's important for them to be unhappy. And they're particularly unhappy because the executive order yesterday doesn't go as far as they wanted to basically ban new uh, oil drilling. So the order did two things. One is a lot on vehicles that we've just been talking about. The other is um, it puts up for study and tightens the screws on new uh, oil drilling in the, in the state, but doesn't go as far as the environmentalists want in particular on, on the issue of fracking. My own view is that that's largely a symbolic debate because California produces less than 0.5% of the global production of oil. And so we're frankly just not that relevant for the global market. But it's a very, very important symbolic debate, and it's being used almost as a litmus test to see how green different political candidates are. Hmm. What about auto manufacturers? You know, some applaud this, others are opposing it. You know, what are the incentives for them to move on this or resist it? Well, so that's the industrial politics here are fascinating. Uh, a number of the auto manufacturers have raised questions about whether the governor has the authority to do this, and that's, you know, untested. It seems like the governor has the authority, but, but we'll, see, uh, we'll see in court. The, the bigger issue is that some of the automakers are ready to do this, you know, most visibly companies like Tesla, and some of them are not ready to do it this quickly. And that's basically all the big American auto manufacturers, except for those that have started to go over to, to aggressive electric vehicles. VW, for example, is a big electric vehicle program after they got caught cheating on the uh, diesel emission scandal. And so you have this huge, huge variation in in the extent to which the different auto companies are ready to move to all electric and all clean models, and that's reflected in their position on the governor's order. So now zero emissions vehicles currently amount to barely 10% of California's automobile market. What needs to be done to, to boost the electric car market now as we move towards his ambitious goal? Well, so far the strategy has been to subsidize new vehicles. There are federal subsidies, there are state subsidies, um, there's a terrific subsidy program managed uh, here locally by, by an NGO, CSE, uh, and, and they, in effect, have helped push the vehicles into the marketplace. Uh, this ban is going to help pull more vehicles into the marketplace, um, and I think the, the number one concern is going to be the infrastructure. Uh, you need uh, charging systems. You need charging systems in communities where people rent houses and therefore can't really justify putting in an expensive charger in a house that they might um, move from in a year or two. 
and and all that is we're beginning to work some of that out. I'm skeptical we're going to have it worked out uh, as quickly as needed for this order. What I'd really watch is the price of new electric vehicles because uh, that price has come down a lot. And even without the subsidies, the price has really come down a lot. So I think households that used to view electric vehicles as kind of a, a toy for the rich are now seeing these as uh, mainstream vehicles. They're reliable. They have long range and an infrastructure for charging has now emerged. So, so that's that's what I'd watch. So you've been keeping an eye on global policy, you know, energy policy and uh, policies to combat climate change. Is this policy what we need to combat climate change or is it too little too late? Well, it's a step. And I think what one of the reasons that climate change is such a hard problem is you there's not a single sector we have to work. You have to work on all sectors. What I like about this policy is it's emblematic of, of a policy that really pushes innovation, pushes the frontier and then brings down the cost of those new technologies, making it easier for them to spread around the world. So we're doing that in electric vehicles. We're gonna do that in medium and heavy duty trucks. Uh, we're doing that uh, in our electric grid here in California. We need to be doing the same thing in all the other sectors that emit cement and steel. California's not a huge steel operator, so that's gonna be for other countries and other markets. Uh, and and that's, gonna, that's the strategy that's gonna really bend the curve here. That interestingly enough is the exactly the strategy the UK government is gonna be putting forward to nations when it hosts the next big climate conference uh, in November of 2021 is a strategy where you don't just get together and talk about the big picture, but you come and countries put on the table, here's what I'm doing in this sector and that sector and it works sector by sector. And, That'll have an impact, but it's going to take some time. And meanwhile, we're building in a huge amount of climate change. We've been speaking with David Victor of the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UCSD. David, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. Misinformation is continuing to spread on social media about the wildfires in California, Oregon, and Washington. To talk about that, CAP Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols joins Mike Haggerty for Can You Handle the Truth? A weekly conversation about his latest fact checks. Chris, last week you talked about some false claims related to the start of these fires. What did you find this week? Well, PolitiFact is finding even more rumors about the start of these fires. Last week, we reported that the FBI in Portland had debunked claims that Antifa was starting wildfires on the West Coast. The FBI even asked people to stop sharing misinformation on social media because these false reports were taking valuable time away from the agencies fighting the fires. And this week, we found a new set of viral posts that blame a California man for lighting more than 30 fires this year. They show a mugshot of the man and call him Mr. Climate Change. And that's an effort to push back against what scientists agree is the contributing role climate change plays in making these fires worse. The problem with these posts is that the man pictured has been incarcerated for the past two years at a mental health facility for inmates in Stockton. He was convicted of starting nine fires in Southern California two years ago, 
but he's played no role in the fires this year, and so PolitiFact rated these claims false. Chris, you also found that social media users, including a prominent actor, were sharing a misleading map of the fires. Can you tell us more about that? That's right. The actor James Woods and many other people shared a map that they suggested disproves claims that the fires are connected to climate change. The map shows fires stopping at the border with Canada, and Woods even tweeted, quote, Hey, Governor Newsom, why does climate change stop abruptly at the Canadian border? End quote. And now it turns out this map only uses U.S. fire data. And for the record, there have been wildfires in Canada this summer. PolitiFact also rated these claims false. Now, there's a claim on Facebook about President Trump in California that you've seen resurface in recent days. Which one's that? That's right. In August, we fact-checked a widely shared Facebook post that alleged the president had denied fire aid to California, but then helped Russia fight wildfires in Siberia. We rated that false when it popped up, but it is circulating again. And some of these really outlandish claims seem to have nine lives. They just appear over and over again. And just to recap on this one, President Trump has repeatedly threatened to withhold federal fire assistance from California. He made a similar threat again last month, but he has always approved that aid. And on Russia, it is true that Trump said last year he offered Russia help with its fires in Siberia. We found no evidence that he actually followed through. Chris, can you remind our listeners how this new CAP Radio initiative works, how you go about fact-checking misinformation on Facebook and other social media platforms? Well, it's no secret that the posts and information on Facebook, whether fact or fiction, can influence what people believe and how they act. We want to hold Facebook users accountable to the truth, especially during this election season. And that's why CAP Radio's PolitiFact California is focusing on Facebook to fact check false news and misinformation. This includes posts on the Facebook and Instagram platforms. Facebook does not decide what CAP radio should fact check, nor does it have a role in the ratings we select. That's it for this week's Can You Handle the Truth, our weekly PolitiFact California conversation. You can find all our fact checks at capradio.org and politifact.com California. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mike. That's it for this week's Can You Handle the Truth, our weekly PolitiFact California conversation. You can find all our fact checks at capradio.org and politifact.com slash California. With the pandemic now entering its sixth month, both parents and teachers of students with disabilities have struggled to keep their students on track. Letitia Avalar has one foot in both worlds. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spent the day with one special ed teacher who has two sons of her own on the autism spectrum. Always on time and ready to learn. Leticia Avalar starts her day at 6.30 in the morning. She wakes up an hour before her two sons so she can lesson plan, catch up on emails, or clean her house. When her sons wake up, she prepares breakfast and logs into her virtual classroom. Okay, Jonna, I'm going to go on classes, guys. Have a quiet voice. I gotta go on class. I gotta do work. 30 year old Leticia hadn't always planned on a career in special education. She was originally studying English and art, but her outlook changed after her first son Jonah was diagnosed with autism and epilepsy. 
Her early experiences with trying to get him the services he needed led her to take a job as a special education teacher's aide. She started working for the San Diego Unified School District in 2016. You kind of just get an initial diagnosis and they're like, okay, bye. And for me, I knew there had to be more than that. Luckily, she had some help. So his first special education teacher like guided me through the whole process on how to get services, how to navigate special education, and like she would call me and tell me this is what you have to do, this is the best thing for your son, and I wanted to be that person for somebody because I knew how important it was like just to have somebody on your corner. So. But today, Leticia is on her own. She's a single parent raising both 11-year-old Jonah and 7-year-old Des, who is also on the autism spectrum. Earlier this year, she earned her special education teaching credential. Fate dealt her another twist when she had to start her teaching career in the middle of a pandemic. The beginning, it was very hard, especially like everything being shut down. So we were literally stuck in there in like a one bedroom apartment for probably two months. Um, and that was like very difficult for all of us. However, she says the first few weeks of teaching in the new term have been smooth, but life's still a challenge. While she teaches high schoolers, her sons still need her attention as they attend their own Zoom classes. It's kind of transitioning back into, you know, I'm working again, I don't have the time. It's what's making this difficult again. Like, um, as you can see, like, I don't have enough time to, like, entertain one while I'm doing this, while I'm doing that. Leticia said her older son Jonah hasn't fallen behind academically. Her younger son, Des, is having a harder time with reading and adjusting to the new schedule. He's kind of having a hard time with the sight words. Um, and he's just having a hard time getting back into like the school like routine of like being online and seeing his teachers and it's still very hard for him. Both Jonah and Daz are getting speech therapy services and Leticia says they're getting better at distance learning. When their classes are over, she spends the rest of the day preparing lessons or helping her sons with their schoolwork. She's also studying to get her master's degree in special education. There's not enough knees, so um, I feel like I, I, I'm not doing enough on their end, and then sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough on the teaching end. Like, you always, like, I always end the day, like, what more could I have done? But then I think, like, what more can I possibly do? But she's comforted by the knowledge that the insight she's gained from her son's experiences has made her both a better teacher and a better parent. Joe Hong, KPBS News. An urban farm in City Heights is becoming an anchor for the community amid the pandemic, letting people pay what they can for fresh food. In this audio postcard from our Speak City Heights partner, Media Arts Center San Diego, farm co-founder Adriana Barraza tells us more about how they're keeping City Heights fed. A La Vuelta Farm is a partnership, and um, it's myself and, and my neighbor and old friend Rika and we grow microgreens and shoots here in City Heights um, with the goal of making fresh food more accessible and affordable in our area. One of the reasons why we, we focused on, on City Heights is because in our farm as a La Vuelta Farm, we, we always envision this as being a business that's a kind of force against gentrification. And so we want to grow these delicious, you know, beautiful greens, but not just go and sell them in La Jolla. There's a lot of immigrants here in this neighborhood and everywhere, um, Mexican immigrants, Latino immigrants, but also from all over the world that have these ways of, of eating and existing and living that's more in connection to, to the land and the seasons. 
but when they immigrate, there's this idea that you have to, you know, assimilate or adapt to the way of life here. There's this quick loss that happens from like our, our traditions. And so people think that's just not possible to have that fresh, you know, the fresh greens that you used to harvest, the, the chiles, the, you know, whatever. Some of our neighbors come by and they see what we're growing in the front yard. They're like, what? You have chile de bean. This is amazing. You know, I didn't think you can even grow these. I thought they had to be wild harvested. And so, so there's a reawakening, I think, that happens when people start seeing like small urban farms that are growing these traditional foods. And there's also just that, that it feels like, oh, wow, this is worth doing and it can be done. It's been really cool to see our customer base growing here at, in City Heights at the Fairmount Urban Garden uh, pop-up on Saturdays uh, because we do have a lot of um, Latino women and families and kids that are, that are excited to be picking up their pepinos. And we, it's pretty cool because some of them share their photos with us of the kids super excited eating what, what was in the box this week, the strawberries, the, the watermelon. It's been really fulfilling for me to find myself in this role of being able to share healthy food and the recipes and the access with other people in my family, first and foremost, and in my neighborhood. Having the core of our business be committed to equity was there from the start. And then with COVID, you know, we see that there's so many people that are unemployed right now or, or struggling and having the superpower to grow fresh food and be able to share it with our communities is something that we're really like excited to share. So pay what you can is, is just feel like that's the only just way to, to be, to be functioning right now in these times, you know, cause it's not all about profits. It's about sustainability and how do we keep not just ourselves in, in a safe place that feels stable, but our communities. That was an audio postcard from our Speak City Heights partner, Media Arts Center San Diego. On the second episode of Rad Scientist Season 3, host Margot Wall introduces us to an engineer who wants to understand how the brain helps us vocalize with the hopes of restoring speech for those who have lost the ability. Daryl Brown is an electrical engineering PhD candidate at UC San Diego, but his plan B might surprise you. My fallback in case the science thing doesn't work is I always wanted to be a voice actor. Let me wet my palate first. <clears throat> I can make my voice sound very different. Or I can make it a little bit higher. I understand what's wrong with you. Can't you just get out of my way? Why are you being so mean? I guess it does fit with my research because I do, I study vocalizations. Um, I'm studying it more like from a, like a neuroengineering perspective to be used for the development of a human speech prosthesis. Basically, he wants to help build machines that can take brain activity and translate it into human speech for those who can no longer produce vocalizations due to paralysis or neurodegeneration. I've always been interested in neuroprosthetics. My grandfather was a paraplegic. Um, so as a kid, I was always uh, really curious as to like, how, why can't grandpa walk? Like, how can I help him? Like, what can be done? The field of neuroprosthetics asks how we can replace 
re-engineer parts of the human body that no longer work. And Daryl displayed natural engineering tendencies as a kid. And when thinking about how to make progress on neuroprosthetics, he was well aware of some of the difficulties surrounding the field, like how to build better systems given the limits on opportunities of doing experiments with humans. We have a patient um, who typically they either they um, are, have like uh, tetraplegia or they have um, seizures or they have um, some underlying neuropathology where they it can't be treated by medication. Like they have to do invasive uh, brain surgery. So this is where researchers might pop in and ask, hey, while your skull is open, um, would you be a doll and let us put some conductive sticks in your brain and have you say some silly things repeatedly for science? And it's really one of the only ways to get this kind of data with humans. But you can see how it would be hard to make progress quickly. Imagine if every game was the Super Bowl. Like, there was no practices, there's no playoffs. You just went straight in. Yeah, that's probably not going to go so well. Uh, that's why he needs to work with an animal model, some species that makes a lot of regular vocalizations that you can keep in a lab and record from their brains. That's not easy. Primates, like, they vocalize, but you can't just, like, tell a monkey, say hello 15 times in a row. Is that a challenge, Daryl? But you can get a bird to sing the same song a bunch of times in a row. Ah, yes, birds. Well, not just any birds, songbirds. There are about 5,000 species of songbirds out there, but Daryl is studying a particular species with bright orange beaks and striped tail feathers, the zebra finch. They'll sing in isolation, they'll sing in groups. These birds love singing, even in a lab. The interesting thing is that the, their song is learned um, in, this, in the way that's very similar to how we learn how to speak. Songbirds have tutors, older birds that teach them the proper song. And young birds start out by doing something akin to babbling until their songs get better. Here's a male zebra finch's song as it goes from a wee little bird to an adult. So this is an adolescent. Now a teenager. Too cool for school. And finally, this is the adult finch with 401k, mortgage, all that. And now, all together in a sequence, so you can really hear the progression. Okay, I've been told by my editor that perhaps it's not super easy to tell the difference in the songs if you haven't studied songbirds before. But you gotta trust me on this one. By adulthood, these male birds have constructed their lifelong song that they will use to woo the ladies. And what you might have heard probably sounds simple, and that's because it is. It's a chain of syllables that are repeated in the same order. One, two, three. One, two, three. But sometimes the finches will mix things up. The way I think about it is kind of like whenever you have a drummer playing and while they're playing, they may like twirl their, their stick before continue playing. They may add a little flair in between their motifs. That allows us to kind of have the best of both worlds. One, we have like the stereotype song, like the syllables, their, their muscle contractions have to be about the same to produce that sound. But there's still natural like jitter that happens in, in, in speech. So when you think of like human speech, although our words may have their kind of like 
stereotyped sound, like the sound, like the word um, hello. Um, but you can say hello faster, slower. You can, in a sentence where I'm saying the same five words in, in an order, the gaps between the, the words can, can dilate or contract. Daryl hopes that by studying how the bird brain elicits songs, he can figure out how to make a vocal prosthesis for the zebra finch during his PhD. The, the pie in the sky like, would be, we would have um, found neural signals that, uh, that would encode um, song. Um, we would develop a, a closed loop real-time system that we can then implant and connect to the bird. When we have the bird singing, is this prediction, um, does it match what the bird is trying to sing? Zebra finches are really just a means to an end. Ultimately, the results of Daryl's work is meant to help out people, people who have lost or will lose the ability to speak. But even though he wants to be a force for good for humanity, he recognizes a bitter irony. It's really weird to work in a space where like a lot of like my research, I aim for it to help all people. It doesn't matter the color of their skin, it doesn't matter their race, religion, gender identity. And to do work to help these individuals, but still understand that some of those individuals are totally okay with a system that would kill me for no reason. It's a weird mental gymnastic exercise that pretty much have to do every day. To hear more about Daryl and how racism has impacted his academic journey, you can listen to the full episode by searching for Rad Scientist in your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. Whether you yourself are a gardener or not, gardening expert Nan Sturman's award-winning TV show, A Growing Passion, is a refreshing glimpse into our Southern California gardening landscape. From ways to grow things without using much water, to what makes our region special in the horticultural realm. A new series of A Growing Passion starts tonight on KPBS television, and Nan joins us now to talk more about what's in store. Nan, welcome. Thank you so much. So for any listeners who are not familiar with the show, tell us why they should watch it. You know, what's your goal in making these shows? Oh, my. There is so much that happens in and around our region that has to do with plants, be it gardening or native habitats, what's on our farms, what's uh, happening in nurseries. You know, at the university, research 
all kinds of things. You know, plants are so important in our lives. They are everything to us. They're what we wear. They make the oxygen we breathe. They're our food. They're the basis of the world food chain. They're habitat for birds and all kinds of animals. We rely on plants. Without them, we can't live, literally. So let's go look and see where plants are and, and how they benefit us and ways they're involved in our lives that we don't necessarily know about and some ways that we do. And it's just, it's the exploration of plants and the planet. Now, the focus this season is on environmentally and economically friendly gardens, right? So what does that mean, really, for the average gardener? It means growing things you can eat. Interestingly, the pandemic has done something that I never anticipated, and that is it's made people really interested in um, focusing on home and garden. I have a Facebook group called San Diego Gardener, and we have just, we're coming up on 12,000 members uh, for the San Diego area alone. The Facebook group has absolutely exploded since the pandemic began, and everyone is interested in growing their own food. They're backyard gardeners. So that puts a lot of interest in growing things that, that you can eat in your backyard. And so this, this season, for example, we are doing an episode on dragon fruit, which grow on cactus, climbing cactus. We were out in um, Bonzo last week shooting a segment for that, and we'll be up in Irvine this coming week shooting another segment. Dragon fruit are wonderful cactus fruit, and they're beautiful, and they taste delicious. We're going to revisit some of the farmers that we visited in the past and find out how the pandemic has affected their operations, the demand for their products, and their livelihoods. It's been very, very interesting if you're a farmer. A lot of ups and downs, and uh, I'll, I won't give away what the, uh, what the information is, but you'll have to watch to find out. Right. Now, I understand that one of the episodes in the new season is all about growing olives. Now, when I think of olives, I think of, of Italy, but what's the story with olives in San Diego County? Well, Italy and Spain, yes, but, you know, Italy and Spain and the Middle East, they all have the same kind of climate we do. They all have the Mediterranean climate, which is a climate where the rainfall comes in winter and summers are long and hot and dry. Those climates are all the perfect kinds of climates for olives. So there's a, a couple that lives out in Ramona. Um, we're we're going to tell a couple of different olive stories. One of them is about a couple that lives in Ramona. The husband is from Israel, and he grew up in a family where fresh olive oil was on the table every day in Israel. They moved here, and their property, they have about 12 acres, were, was burned in one of, the, one of the fires. I think it was the Witch Creek Fire. 12 acres of landscape, they saved the house, but all the native plants were burned away. And so when they were trying to figure out what to do on their property, the husband remembered that olive oil and decided he wanted to try his hand at growing olives. So we're going to visit him and his, uh, his whole family in their olive grove and see how he makes award-winning olive oil. We also um, visit Temecula Olive Oil Company, which is I think the biggest olive grower and olive oil maker in Southern California. They do an amazing, an amazing job. They have a big facility out east of Temecula. The great things about growing olives is that you can grow olive trees on land that's very marginal for growing anything else. So it makes it a very versatile crop, one that a lot of people are interested in. Those are our main two places that we're going to visit, but we tell a whole lot of little stories within those two locations. 
Well, of course, we're we're all. Uh, you don't have to be a, a farmer to be worried about water these days. We're all trying to save water. Do you have any new words of wisdom about ways to do that? The same ways that we've been, you know, I've been talking about for years. Think about your garden in zones. Each zone is a different water requiring zone and plant group your plants according to their water needs. I did a garden consultation uh, for a couple of, actually out in Ramona last week. And the husband said to me that his biggest challenge when it came to watering was that he found that the plants were all mixed up. There were things that needed a lot of water planted next to things that didn't need very much water. And how was he supposed to manage that? I mean, how long was he supposed to water? And I looked at him and I said, that's not the solution. The solution is to remove the plants and regroup them so that all the high water plants are in one region, all the low water plants are in another region, and each plant will get what it needs without, without getting too much or too little. And that is key to having a garden that conserves water and also making sure you have the right kind of irrigation system. Inline drip irrigation is the the best irrigation for our region because all of the water goes directly into the soil. During these shows, you get to interview all sorts of interesting people and go to interesting places. What are some of the things you'll be focusing on this season? So I'm so glad you asked. We have an episode on a plant explorer, the adventures of a plant explorer. And this is about a local man who travels the world looking for new and interesting plants and rare plants. And he documents where they live around the world and he brings back seeds and pollen. He grows those plants up and then he uses them to breed new plants, primarily succulents. So aloes, agaves, uh, some of the dudley, which are actually natives to here, and other plants like that. He is one of the world's experts and he makes new varieties all the time. It's, it's like the mad scientist and he's made some really, really amazing plants. So we're going to explore what the process is. We're going to see how he does that. We're going to see his growing grounds, um, all of which are local. We're also going to visit our own San Diego Botanic Garden, which is right down the street from me and, and a very important in some respects, hidden gem here in San Diego area. But it's open now during the pandemic. You know, you have to make a reservation to go because they're limiting the numbers of, of people. But the San Diego Botanic Garden is on historic property, and they have some of the most amazing demonstration gardens showing what grows well here, as well as an amazing, wonderful, fun children's garden. And there's just lots going on there, and I, I can't wait to show people what's happening. I've been speaking with Nan Sturman, who is host of A Growing Passion, and I am certainly going to be watching the new season. I just planted some dragon fruit myself, so I want to see what you have to say about those. And season eight premieres tonight at 8.30 on KPBS television. You can also see encore presentations of past episodes by going to either kpbs.org or agrowingpassion.com, which has all kinds of wonderful tips for gardeners. And Nan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Can I tell people to please follow us on social media too? You get behind the scenes images and tips for gardening and all that kind of stuff. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're all the usual places. Great. Thanks so much, Nan. Happy growing. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. 
Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.